Within literary works, and the Bible is no exception to this, creative authors will often use the natural world in order to illustrate spiritual principles. For example, the changing of the seasons can represent the life cycles of the human experience. Spring rains can represent the, bl the blessings of the divine. Summer drought can be emblematic of God's displeasure. A successful harvest can symbolize the positive results of God's favor manifesting from one's obedience, while a severe famine can be illustrative of a divine judgment being yielded from one's brazen disobedience. Fruitfulness and fertility can signify internal health and vitality, while barrenness and fruitlessness can indicate death or at least be a warning of a much deeper ill. The reason this technique is so common centers on the reality these natural world occurrences are relatable to all. I mean, virtually every human being that's ever lived, irrespective of country, class, or ethnicity, anyone living on this dust bowl called Earth, held utterly captive by the fickle sway of forces beyond our control, practically we all understand these literary connections. And it's in line with this idea that when you're studying the Bible, you should keep in mind that physical storms, well, they represent difficulty, difficult times, trying seasons, even a stretching set of circumstances. And yet, while true, not all storms arise for the same reason or with the same divine intent. In Scripture, you'll find two different types of storms. First, there are what I call storms of disobedience. Because of a person's sin, or their rebellion, or their poor choices, God allows a storm into this person's life for the purpose of correction. These storms of disobedience are storms of your own making. And ironically... Since this is the case, storms of disobedience are largely avoidable. A great example of this type of storm presented in the Bible would be the one recorded for us in the book of Jonah. God called Jonah to go and deliver a message to Nineveh. But in an act of defiance, Jonah boards a boat and sailed the opposite direction. As a result, a great tempest arose, dooming the ship to destruction. Jonah is ultimately thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish, only to be spit up on a coastal road headed to Nineveh. Rebellion, disobedience, a storm. The second type of storm that you'll come across in the Bible are what I refer to as a storm of obedience. These storms don't manifest as a consequence of anything that you did or didn't do. They aren't a divine judgment or punishment of any kind. Instead, storms of obedience... They arise naturally and often suddenly, sometimes as being nothing more than the results of living in a fallen world. A perfect example of this type of storm in Scripture would be the tale of a man named Job. <laughs> At no fault of his own, God allows into Job's life incredible calamity, hardship. In one day, the man loses everything and everyone he loves. Astonishingly, Job resists the urge to curse or blame God. And in the end, while he's never given an explanation why, 
he has suffered so, God does reveal himself to Job in a powerful way through a profound exchange. The storm in Job's life passes and his life is restored in full. In the scriptures, these storms of obedience can often be referred to as trials or tribulations. In James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, we read this daunting exhortation. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When, not if, but when, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In the end, great tempests. They come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes, don't they? These storms of obedience. Car accident. Or some other type of tragedy. Taking the life of a person that you love. Someone that you hold dear. Out of nowhere. You go in for a health checkup and you get a cancer diagnosis. M- maybe your storm is prolonged. This nagging chronic illness you've, you've had to endure. For others, storms are are seasons where you have to to navigate the declining health of parents. Others face situations where they struggle. How do I minister practically to a prodigal, a wayward child? Relationships experience storms. Marriages get rocky. Sometimes breakups occur. Presently, we all find ourselves and the great tempest of a global pandemic. At no fault of our own, (laughs) we all find ourselves faced with a hidden enemy known as the coronavirus that has quickly flipped our entire world upside down. In just a few weeks, many of you have seen thousands of dollars, hard-earned dollars, set aside for retirement or a 401k, vanish. Your children can't see their friends, their sports season's canceled, they can't go to school. The enjoyment we find in social things like professional sports or going to see a movie, these things are no longer happening. Churches are forced to live stream. What's sad about the storm that we're all enduring is that social distancing, while necessary to flatten the curve, has left many to face this storm at home alone. Depression. Those numbers are increasing. Shelter-in-place orders have ruined businesses, upended our way of living, thrown our economy into peril, have left many unemployed. At best, our future uncertain. And aside from those things, there's the health concerns, right? Beyond our own personal health, the health of our kids, We all are worrying about grandparents, the elderly, those at greater risk. The interesting thing about storms, whether they manifest as a consequence of your poor decisions, storms of disobedience, or they've unexpectedly just swooped in at no fault of your own. The thing about storms, and really everything, is that God's always in control of the weather. To be fair, it's easier to wrap your mind around that idea when it's a storm of disobedience, a storm of of your own making. I mean, you can see the divine purpose in it. In fact, you can see it coming. You made it. 
And yet, isn't it much more difficult to understand why God would allow a great tempest into your life that you didn't cause, that you didn't warrant? In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, and Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, we have recorded for us such a storm. A storm. At no fault of their own, the disciples of Jesus will find themselves in a crisis of epic proportions. Jesus had given them a command that they had been faithful to carry forth, yet without warning, they find themselves in a great tempest. So great, mind you. They weren't even sure they would make it through it alive. This storm, as we'll see this morning, will push the faith of these men to the brink. But not only will Jesus in the end prove himself able, but he'll teach these men a set of valuable lessons relevant for you and I and what we face today. In order for you to get the complete record of events, instead of just reading the three separate accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I've taken the liberty to harmonize their narratives uh, into one. So here we have the harmonizing of the gospel narratives of this one event from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now it came to pass on a certain day when evening had come and they had left the multitudes that Jesus went into a ship and his his disciples followed him. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake So they took him along in the boat as he was, and they launched forth, and other little boats were also with him. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep on a pillow in the stern of the boat, and there came down suddenly a great windstorm on the lake. And there arose a great tempest in the sea. As Jesus slept, the waves beat into the boat, insomuch that the ship was covered over with the waves, so that it was filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. And his disciples come to Jesus and they awake him and they say teacher do you not care that we are perishing master master we perish Lord save us so he arose and rebuked the wind the raging of the water and said to the sea peace be still and the wind and raging water ceased and there was a great calm then Jesus said to them why are you so fearful how is it that you have no faith but the disciples (laughs) They feared exceedingly, were filled with amazement and wonder, and they said to one another, What manner of man is this? Who can this be, that he commands even the winds, water, and the sea, and they obey him? This particular story begins when evening had come. For context, Jesus has spent an entire day tirelessly ministering to the multitudes outside the town of Capernaum, located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sensing it was time to push into new areas, which was normal for Jesus, he tells the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. As the movie reel turns in your mind, realize the Sea of Galilee is not very big at all. You can stand on the shore, see across, and to each side. It's, It's about seven miles wide, 14 miles long. Not a big body of water. And for a crew of men who'd grown up on these waters... And keep in mind, many of Jesus' disciples had been fishermen by trade. This particular journey wouldn't have taken more than just a couple hours, sailing under the right conditions. Now, pursuant to his instructions, as the multitudes are being sent home for the evening, the disciples prepare one of the boats to make the short trip. 
Once ready, they all load up. The sails hoisted. The boat begins slicing through the glassy water under the moonlight. Within our text, there's a very subtle but important detail as to what's happening you might have missed at pond first glance. Jesus' initial command to the disciples. It's, it's straightforward, isn't it? Simple. He didn't demand that they take him to the other side. No, 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 no. Instead, Jesus says, hey, guys, let us cross over to the other side. Now, what's inferred is that Jesus here had every intention of helping in the process. And yet, the gospel writers are specific that this didn't end up being a joint effort. We're told, Jesus says, let us go to the other side, but in turn, they took him along in the boat. <laughs> What's implied by the authors is that because Jesus was their master, because he was their Lord, because Jesus was a greenhorn, Jesus was a carpenter by trade, not spent much time on the waters, instead of letting him help like he desired, these men come to him and are like, Jesus, uh, there's, this is not a partnership. Why don't you just kind of sit back, stay out of the way, let us do this. We'll take you to the other side, no problem. Well, I love the fact that Jesus here, he doesn't argue with them. They're refusing his help, so Jesus utilizes the opportunity for a little R&R, &R, a little rest. We read that Jesus leaves the deck, proceeds down into the stern, which is in the back of the boat, and he decides to get himself some probably much-needed shut-eye on a pillow. Now, on a pillow, it's, it's a definitive article, the pillow, indicating that Jesus probably is sleeping in what was known as the captain's quarters. Now, imagine the scene. After a long day, jammed full of ministry, Jesus and his men, they're in the boat. And they're gliding effortlessly across peaceful water under the propulsion of a gentle breeze coming out of the north, wind to their back. The men on deck tending to the sails with Jesus fast asleep below. As disciples, they find a measure of satisfaction knowing for once they didn't need Jesus' help as they were more than qualified to navigate such familiar waters on their own. I think it's safe to assume, refreshed by the warm air emanating off the sea on what was likely a cool evening, these men were busy discussing. Discussing what? Oh, the events of that day, no doubt. Sharing their different perspectives. I'm sure they were talking about just how lucky they were to have been chosen as Jesus' disciples. How they'd been given a front row seat to see the incredible. These men are, are talking, sharing stories. Jesus is below deck, fast asleep. All was calm as this little boat is making its way across the Sea of Galilee. And just an hour or so, they pull into port. None of them could have imagined what was about to occur. For a great tempest was brewing. In the harmonizing of these three separate accounts of the same evening, one detail kind of emerges from all three perspectives. And it really centers on the suddenness of what happens. I mean, without any warning, this calm night on the Sea of Galilee 
was immediately overtaken by sheer and utter chaos. You see, these glassy waters instantly swelled, tossing their boat to and fro. The gentle breeze quickly surrendered to a torrential gust, now threatening to rip the sail from the mast. The warmth of the water was now suppressed by the frigid air sweeping down from the surrounding mountains. The moon, illuminating the night sky, was concealed abruptly from view by storm clouds, clouds, mind you, that's now pounding these men with a horizontal rain. Their ability to communicate is hindered by the great roar of thunder. With each crash of lightning, these seasoned fishermen could see the horror and the panic developing on everyone's face. It's been said the Sea of Galilee gets its name because it's a lake that behaves like a sea. The body of water is situated about 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded entirely by mountains. Meaning that these type of, of violent and unpredictable storms were common. It was normal for big storms to happen quickly on the Sea of Galilee. I also think it's, it's just safe for us to assume that guys like Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, since they had been fishing this lake since they were lads, they had navigated with their fathers and grandfathers a fair share of these type of unpredictable storms. And yet, from the account, it doesn't take very long for these men to realize that what was happening, this tempest they were facing, this storm that was brewing, it wasn't typical. It wasn't your normal Galilean tempest. In fact, the Greek word tempest is seismos, from which we get our English word seismic. Every other place this word is used in the Bible, it's translated into English as earthquake. The only time it's translated as tempest. The idea was not, the, the idea was that the storm was not only the result of a great windstorm coming off the surrounding peaks, stirring the water from above, but that the storm was caused by a violent shaking was also rattling the sea from below. From above and below. The winds instantly eliminated. Their ability to control the boat. I mean, these men are now at the mercy of, of churning swells of the waves. The darkened sky removed any chances of, of being able to navigate back to shore. Where was shore? These men didn't know they're up from, their, up from down, right to left, north to south, east to west. Disorientation. The blasts of thunder, the deafening crashes of lightning made it impossible to hear, to communicate, to bark orders. And the unrelenting rain restricted their ability to see, but just a few feet, likely not even across the bow. I mean, you can understand why we would read they were in jeopardy. The storm had placed their lives into a great peril, great danger. Again, as I played this scene out in my mind, knowing what I know of these disciples, in spite of such dire circumstances, <laughs> you can reason that there was no, no quit to their spirit. They were in a fight. Aside from this, I mean, Jesus had given them a command. He had given them an order. 
They were determined to follow through. Failure for these men wasn't an option. Disoriented by the swirling wind and overwhelming darkness, these men, I can imagine, fought hard to keep the boat from turning sideways and capsizing. With each wave that crashed over the bow, knocking them off from their feet, sliding them across the deck, they, these men quickly would jump back up, race to their stations to brace the mast to withstand another inevitable impact. As the rains continued to pour down, these disciples, everyone available and able, were tenacious in bailing water in an attempt to keep the vessel afloat. How long these men valiantly braved the elements, we're not told. That said, at some point in time, they all slowly succumbed to an inevitable fate. Not only were they losing the battle against this storm, they lost. The boat was sinking. And there was nothing they could do to save themselves. And it's at this point in our story, they finally decide to have a much-needed powwow with Jesus, who, while all of this is happening, is in the stern of the boat, still sleeping. We read, And Jesus' disciples came and awoke him. And they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Master, Master, we perish. Lord, save us. And there are a few things that we can draw from what these men say to Jesus. First, they're willing to acknowledge the reality of their situation, aren't they? They had told Jesus up front they didn't need his help, right? To sell to the other side of the lake. But things have spun out of control. And in spite of their best attempts to mitigate disaster, they come to Jesus and concede, we are perishing. They thought you boys had it. We didn't. Secondly, to their credit, these men affirm the belief that Jesus could save them. Like, like in the end, their appeal was straightforward, but genuine. They come, we're perishing, Lord, save us. Like, don't miss that. They don't question Jesus' ability to save, nor do they doubt his authority to save. In fact, over the course of the last several months, they'd seen enough to know Jesus was more than able. Lastly, be hesitant before you judge them. These disciples, they were audacious enough to accuse Jesus of what? Of not caring. Look, look again, the first words out of their mouth when they wake him up. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? Like the implication of such an accusation was that these men believed Jesus yeah, he might have been asleep below deck, but he knew what was happening. Jesus knew what was taking place, and he was choosing to remain on the sidelines. Jesus, wake up, Jesus. We are perishing, and you don't seem to care. <laughs> Look at what follows. In response to their question, do you, do you care? Statement, we are perishing, and appeal, Lord save us. We read that Jesus arose and rebuked the wind, the raging of the water, and said to the sea, peace, be still. And instantly the wind and raging water ceased, and there was a great calm. 
Then Jesus said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Like To really understand what's happening here. Because if you didn't giggle, you missed it. you got to try your best to, again, get into the scene itself. Here you have a group of, of fatigued, frazzled, fearful disciples. The boat's going down. There's nothing more they can do. They slide across the deck. They find themselves going down into the stern of the ship. They're freaking out. They rudely wake up Jesus. They grab him and they shake him. Who's enjoying a good nap, mind you? They accuse him. You don't care about what's going on. We're perishing. We need you to save us. Now, from the plain reading of the text, keep in mind, by his reaction to these things, it's clear Jesus doesn't really have any concern at all about the storm. <laughs> I mean, he exhibits zero panic about the growing crisis. He doesn't feel threatened by what's going on. He's not even worried by what was likely to be a stern filling quickly with water. <laughs> and the way that he handles the situation with this group of, of disciples losing it in front of him illustrates the fact the tempest was really nothing more than an afterthought. Have you ever been in a good nap and, and you were immediately woken up by a child or a spouse upset so upset that they're there i mean they're running about a 100 miles an hour like if you've experienced that daddy 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 they're just running running you're you're half asleep like you know that that immediate fog of slumber makes it hard to focus and, and make out what they're frantically trying to tell you if you add to that dynamic a great tempest outside with thunder and lightning and rain and waves making it very loud, like you can understand why Jesus does what he does in the order in which he does it. So they come down, Jesus, 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 do you not care that we're per perishing? you got to wake up. We're dying. We need you to save us, Jesus. And, and there he is, and he's like, he, his eyes open. And we're told that he arose, right? I, I can see Jesus rubbing the, the sleep out of his eyes, right? He's caught off guard a little. He stands up. He gets to his feet. Again, the boat's going back and forth, up and down. He, he, he braces himself. He probably stretches and, and gives a good yawn. Looks at the men. Decides to... Goes up the stairs. Pokes his head out. What does he do? He rebukes the storm. Now this word rebuke... It's akin to a parent raising their voice and saying, stop it. <laughs> and then almost as if it's a nuisance, he, he then commands the sea to be silent. Peace, be still, or, or be silent, stay silent. It's as though Jesus, he, he balances himself. He's trying to figure out what's going on with these guys. He, he, it's hard to hear. There's the fog of slumber. He's got to deal with problems, right? So he climbs up the stairs. He pokes his head out. He says, stop it. Shut up. Just give me a moment. Then he comes back down and he looks at these guys and he's like, so what's going on? <laughs> I mean, look at it. Jesus speaks into the, the, the elements. And these forces of nature obey. Why? Well, it's the same word that spoke them into existence, the creator. He has power over them. Jesus climbs up the stairs, says, stop it, I need a moment. 
boom, the boat stops swaying. The howl of the wind, the thunderous roars, the crashes of lightning cease. The pounding rain stops. Everything is calm. It's, it's an eerie silence. Jesus comes back down the stairs. He looks at these guys. and What, what does he say? I love it. He says, uh, wh- why are you fearful? Guys, what, what's, what's the whole fuss about? If you're one of these guys, I mean, what can you possibly say in that moment? Like, they're exhausted. They're standing there totally waterlogged. But now they're looking at each other in amazement for the very thing that they feared was about to do them in. No longer existed. (laughs) At that moment, their fear seemed rather ridiculous, didn't it? It's at this point that we realize, as the disciples that evening, the storm was never really the issue, nor was their fear of perishing. Instead, the pressing concern was their fear in the storm revealed a lack of faith in Jesus. Look again, after after asking them, why are you so fearful? Jesus then continues, how is it that you have no faith? Now the question we should consider this morning is what did these men have a lack of faith in? Like, what was the essence of their unbelief? Did these men doubt Jesus' ability to save them? No. In fact, that's, that's their appeal. They cried out, Master, we're perishing. Lord, save us. What you should realize is that in the end, what the storm really called into question was whether or not they believed Jesus actually cared about them it's why their first words or literally their prayer to jesus in the crisis was do you not care that we are perishing as we seek to unpack the grand lesson of this particular story and gain insight into what jesus is trying to teach all of us in the great tempest that we face we must be clear the storm that night on the Sea of Galilee, it was not a storm of disobedience. It was a storm of obedience. Jesus commanded the disciples, the whole thing began. Let us go to the other side. The men were being obedient when they found themselves in the storm. And can we be real for a moment that 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 truth It's kind of what makes storms of obedience so challenging. Storms of disobedience, I I know why they're here. I cause them. I know what they tend to, uh, what God wants to accomplish because I'm a moron. and He's wanting to put me back on on track. I I get that. Storms of disobedience, I know their purpose. I know their reason. I know their intent. I I get it. I even see them coming. Storms of obedience. Of obedience, rather, I didn't do anything to cause them. I don't do anything to deserve them. I often didn't even see them coming. I'm being obedient. I'm being faithful. And then, boom, crisis. And it's those moments that what happens? We're left wondering why the storm is happening. Like these men, tempests, leave us asking, why, God, would you allow these things to happen? I have found storms. They shake my faith not in who Jesus is, 
nor the power that he possesses. But storms shake. They shake my ability to hold fast to his love. Do you really love me? Do you really care for me? I know, intellectually. I know theologically that things that are clearly out of my control very much remain in his control, but these questions abound. God, if you really love me, then why would you allow such terrible things to happen? These storms, these crises. And yet, this is what's amazing about our story. The disciples question Jesus' love for them. Do you not care that we are perishing? They ask a question. Notice Jesus never verbally answers the question. Instead, all Jesus ends up doing is intervening in a more profound way in order to demonstrate that he did care for them. Notice, Jesus wasn't stirred because of the howling of the wind. He wasn't woken by the rocking of the waves or the pounding of the rain. In fact, the deafening crashes of thunder, the brilliant flashes of lightning, had no effect whatsoever on Jesus sleeping at rest. Instead, the one thing that does stir Jesus to act, the one thing that caused Jesus to get up and to involve himself in the storm was the cries of his disciples for help. Jesus, what does he do to show his love for them? How could they know he cared for them? He sowed his word into the wind and sea and said, peace, be still. And you know what happened? The wind ceased and there was a great calm. The point that Jesus is making to these men that night and what should not be lost on any of us facing such a daunting tempest is that whatever storm you find yourself presently facing, take courage knowing the same word that led you into the storm also possesses an incredible power over the storm. Let us cross over to the other side was a command. Peace be still was a command. Same power. Let me bring this home. Christian, I promise that if you'd get your eyes off of the storm, and if you cry out to Jesus, even in a desperation, not only will he prove himself able to fulfill his promise to get you to the other side, to get you through the storm, but the same powerful word that has authority over storms of life also carries with it the same supernatural results when spoken into your own heart. You see, in the storm, what Jesus promises, what he provides, what he gives, is his word that yields peace and calm. In closing, like think back to how everything in this story began. Because there's a few more lessons. Everything that occurred that fateful night started when Jesus came to them and said, let us cross over to the other side, right? But tragically, their fundamental mistake, as experienced fishermen who'd, who had grown up on these waters, these men believed sailing to the other side, which was the command of Jesus, was one of the few things that they could accomplish, they could do, apart from Jesus' involvement. Like, let us cross over to the other side. Great, we don't need you, Jesus. We can do this. This is the one thing we're able to do. 
In fact, Jesus ends up sleeping in the stern below, not because he didn't care about them, but on account they had initially refused his help on the deck above. Disciples of Jesus, I beg you to realize, Jesus, he allowed the storm, not to do these men in or to destroy them, but to teach them two things we need to, we need to know. First, and this is a promise, Jesus will never lead us into a storm he's not willing to help us through. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul gives us a promise that should anchor us in storms. Paul writes, we know, we're confident, we're sure that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His purposes. All things, good things, bad things, all things work together, are being worked together. Jesus never leads us into a storm that He's not willing to help us through. He never guides where He can't provide. Secondly, though, and don't miss this, None of us are able to obey the commands of Jesus apart from the direct involvement of Jesus. You see, it's a fact of life that self is always inadequate to obey any of the commands of God. Jesus said, let us go to the other side. And these men thought, yeah, we can do that. We don't need you. We got this, Jesus. The storm... The storm illustrated that apart from Jesus and his involvement, there was no other way they would make it to the other side. This coronavirus pandemic, man, it has illustrated the fact that storms happen and they are largely unavoidable. They're an inescapable part of living in fallenness. But I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged, I want you to take heart. That Jesus has a purpose for everything that comes our way. COVID-19 included. Aside from creating a practical opportunity where He can sow into our hearts through His Word peace and calm, in turn demonstrating that He does care for us, that He does love us. But these type of storms, storms of obedience, they deepen our faith and our dependency in Jesus while also stripping from us the false sense of self-reliance. Reaching the point in crisis, Jesus, I can't do this. I'm perishing. Save us. That's not a bad place to be. Because you couldn't do it. You can't. No matter the severity of the storm that you face, and man, they can be challenging, take heart knowing that Jesus will never leave you to face a storm alone. Jesus is in the boat. He's with you. He has power over over storms. So rely on Him and not yourself to endure. Do you know that even as Jesus, that night in the midst of a great tempest, you can rest and have peace and calm? We're told following the events of this day, these men feared exceedingly, were filled with amazement, and wondered, saying to one another, what manner of man is this? Who can this be 
that he commands even the winds and water and sea, and they obey him. You know, the fascinating thing about storms, <laughs> everyone faces them. It's been said you're either in a storm, leaving a storm, or approaching a storm. Everybody faces storms. Whether you believe in God or you don't, trials, tribulations, and their various forms, they're inevitably on your horizon. And yet, Christians, don't miss this. There is no more radical testimony in this world as to the power of Jesus and the power of His Word than a believer in a storm having peace and stillness. You can question (laughs) the manner in which these disciples ultimately come to Jesus in the heat of the moment. Do you not care, Jesus? Of course He cared. Of course He cared. But don't miss this. In their storm, they still came to Jesus. Yes, it was when all hope was lost and they had been stripped of all ability. It was in the final moment of desperation. You know, when the storm started, it would have been a good time to have gone to Jesus then. But they waited. But they still, they still came to Jesus. And they cried out. They prayed. We perish. Lord, save us. And what did Jesus do? He saved them. He saved them. He heard their cry. And he acted on their behalf. This is is not the only storm on the Sea of Galilee these men would face. In fact, another scene would play itself out where Jesus puts these men in a boat, says, go to the other side, I'm going to go pray, I'll meet you there. He sends the multitudes away, he's praying, these men are in the middle of the lake, another great storm kicks up. Same type of thing. They're freaking out. But in this situation, Jesus is not in the boat, he's not asleep. Instead, he's been praying for them. And he comes down and we're told that he walks on the water as if he's going to walk past the boat. They freak out. It's a, it's a ghost. And then they realize, no, it's, it's Jesus. And Peter does something really interesting. He's looking at the boat. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at the boat. He's looking at Jesus. Jesus is walking on the water. They're in a boat. And Peter reaches the conclusion that uh, the better place to be would just be with Jesus, even if that meant getting out of the boat. Where do you even get such an idea? And Peter understood, when it comes to a storm, forget about the boat. It's not about being in the boat, staying in the boat. It's just about being with Jesus. If Jesus is in the boat, stay in the boat. But if Jesus is walking on the water, Lord, Command me that I might come out and walk with you. Jesus says, come on. Peter gets out. He's the only other person aside from Jesus to ever walk on water. He takes a few steps. Then he gets distracted by the winds and the waves, and he begins to sink. And what does he pray? 
the same prayer of these men that night. Lord, save me. And Jesus saves them. The truth. And we all find ourselves in a storm, a great tempest, kind of a generational one. This pandemic, man, nobody saw it coming. Nobody was prepared. Nobody even knows what the the rest of this week will look like, yet alone prognosticating out into the future with any degree. The virus, it came out of nowhere, and it's upended everything. Life is different. Life will be different. And yet, this is what I can say for sure. Even in this crisis, Jesus cares for you. He cares for you. And you might cry out, Lord, we're perishing. Do you not care? But he does. Jesus loves you. And he's more than willing to help you through to the other side. And how can Jesus practically help you know he cares? Simple. The evidence of Jesus' love for his disciple and the storm. It's not the end of, of the storm. It's the peace and the stillness he provides in the midst of it. I don't know how long this storm's going to last. You don't, I don't, no one knows. But the same word of God that calmed the wind and the waves can bring calm to your heart right now. You don't have to ask if Jesus cares or not. Let him show it. Let him demonstrate it. Let him fill your heart with a supernatural peace. Friend, even the things that seem out of control are still very much under his authority. So, Father,